Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Halloween is tomorrow, and rather than talk about ghosts and goblins, today we're going to explore two truly gruesome and totally real tales of deceit, destitution, and death. First, the Hex murder of York County. In 1928, a group of three men brutally murdered a farmer on a remote tract of land in southeastern York County. Their motive is absolutely fiendish. J. Ross McGinnis is an attorney and author. His research into the Hex murder are collected in his book, Trials of Hex. McGinnis joins us today to share the unfortunate story of Nelson Raymeyer. Mr. McGinnis, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or a comment about these fascinating cases, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. The Hex murders or Hex trials occurred in 1928 and 29. Why does this case have such a hold on the region that the story is still told? 90 years later. Scott, this story is homegrown. But it also has elements of the hieroglyphs of Egypt and uh, parts of the Jewish Old Testament. Rudyard Kipling once wrote, well, the road to Ender is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it leads to the witch's abode, just as in the days of Saul. And so the story of Hex and the story of the of this murder leads straight to the witch's abode in the deep regions of Raymar's Hollow. When you say the witch's abode, now this is where our Halloween comes in. Now, there is an element of witchcraft in this, and that is why one of the reasons that uh, the case has gotten so much attention over the years. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Raymar, Nelson Raymar lived alone in his little, in his house, deep in the uh, bowels of Raymire's Hollow, very isolated, very lonely. It's still that way. There are no houses in sight. And Nelson Raymire fit the typical stereotype of a witch. His wife and daughters had left him some years before because, as his wife told the uh, investigating detective, she couldn't stand people coming there all hours of the day and night for powwow. He was a notorious powwower in that community. Okay, now powwower and witchcraft. Describe the two. I mean, was he actually a witch or, as I guess many people would refer to a male witch as a warlock, but, uh, I mean, was he? did he actually practice witchcraft or powwow, and what's the difference? Well, the, the, the two are, are somewhat the same. Uh, the powwower has this book called The Long Lost Friend, which is an anthology of various cures and, and potions and so forth. But in the course of practicing powwow, some people think that it, it also involves an element of witchcraft. And, uh, and certainly... Blymeyer was convinced that he was a witch because uh, Blymeyer... John Blymeyer. John Blymeyer. When John Blymeyer uh, went to his wife's house, uh, he and his wife had separated, had been separated for a couple of years, and asked, asked her where, where he could find uh, Raymeyer. Uh, she told him, well, he's over at his house another mile or so deeper in the hollow. And then as Blymeyer turned to leave, she referred to him as that devilish old witch. And this convinced Blymeyer 
that he was on the right course. All right, so let's kind of go back in the story and provide some background. You talked a little bit about uh, uh, about Nelson Raymeyer himself, who was a recluse, uh, had you know lived back in Raymeyer's Hollow by himself. Wife had left him. He had, he had a son too, right? Well, no, a child? He, no, he had two daughters. Oh, two daughters. Okay, two and the, daughters. And the wife had taken the daughters along the, with him, so the, he was by himself. The wife had taken the daughters with her, and she'd moved out some two years before this thing happened. Now, give me an example. When you say powwow, uh, that a lot of people confuse powwow with uh, with witchcraft. Give me an example from this book of how Nelson Raymeyer would treat people who came to him with, say, some medical condition. Well, if they came to him with the bleeding, with, with for example, with, with warts, uh, he would tie a silk string around the warts, pour chicken blood on them, and say uh, some words, and, uh, and the warts would uh, presumably uh, disappear. And in many cases, in many cases... Uh, people were treated by powwow doctors, and their maladies were cured. And uh, and as a matter of fact, the uh, the medical society of York County during this period was disturbed because, as the president put it, people were consulting powwow doctors before they were coming to medical doctors. Powwow was a kind of subculture. In that in that era in that in that period, was it mostly rural or like even in the city of York was this practice? No, even in the city of York, there were freak there were powwow doctors on almost every street corner, and uh, and they were quite active, but uh, but Raymeyer uh, was a particularly active one, and 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 when I talked to one of his neighbors many years ago, he told me that. He often cautioned Raymire about this powwow nonsense. It was going to get him into a lot of trouble, and of course it did. Mm. So now let's talk about John uh, Blymer. John Blymer was a man that, you know, it sounds too simple to describe him as down on his luck. But this was a guy who his life was not uh, not a very successful no, one. No, he, he was obsessed. He was obsessed with the notion that he was under a curse. And that the witches were following him. And he was advised by the black witch of Marietta that he was under a curse and that the curse had been put on him by, John, by Nelson Raymeyer down in Raymeyer's Hollow. And the, the black witch of Marietta told him that in order to break the curse, he would have to get a lock of Raymeyer's hair and bury it in the earth and the book The Long Lost Friend. And so that was his 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 quest, his objective. So, who is the Black Witch of Marietta? Black Witch of Marietta was a woman by the name of Mrs. Knoll, and uh, she drops out of the picture uh, shortly after, right after Blymire uh, has uh, has has a session with her. She doesn't. She disappears, and uh, and some of the reporters at that period tried to find her. But she couldn't be found. Uh, I think she she disappeared because she saw the uh, the uproar of this event, and she was trying to avoid any involvement. But she was a real person. She was a real person, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, the Black Witch of Marietta. I mean, is that how she advertised herself? Uh, that was her name. That was uh, she was notoriously known by that name, the Black Witch of Marietta. Well, and why did people go to her? What kind of information? She was, was a seeking? powwow performer. She she. Again, she was a powwow practitioner, but she was a powwow practitioner that went beyond all the other people that uh, Blymeyer consulted. Nobody could figure out what, was, what, what, what he should do, but she told him that Nelson Raymeyer had put a hex on him, and he, had to break the, he could break the hex by getting a lock of Nelson Raymeyer's hair. Now, how did she know Nelson Raymeyer? I suspect, I suspect that uh, Blymeyer told her about Nelson Raymeyer. He knew Nelson Raymeyer. He'd picked potatoes for him in his little farm some years before, and he knew about his reputation down in Raymeyer's Hollow. And I suspect that Nelson Raymeyer, or that Blymeyer, told her about Nelson Raymeyer.
So she did, as far as you know, did not have any knowledge of him beforehand. No, I wasn't a competitor or anything like that. No, I don't know of any contact that she had with Nelson Raymire. Mm-hmm. I'm still getting over the the part that she advertised herself as the black, black witch of Marietta, but uh, you know, <laughs> I could just see her sign out front, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so she was that something that was common in, in a way to get rid of a spell that uh, you would get a lock of hair from the witch and bury it. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure about that. I suspect that that was one, one, one uh, device that was used, but uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can't vouch for how often or how frequently this, this, this thing was used, but I know that she told him that that's what he had to do. He had to get the lock of hair. And just to point out that uh, she did not say... You had to kill him. No, 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 no. I don't think I don't think that Ray uh, that Blymeyer intended to kill Raymar. I don't think he did. I think that happened because the encounter between Blymeyer and his confederates, John Curry and Wilbert Hess. I think the encounter simply got out of hand. Well, let's talk about them. Uh, they were his accomplices. Who were they? Describe them, well, John like. Curry was a young boy, but uh, some 14 years old, and, and he had been having bad luck. That's summer of 1928. Uh, as he testified at the trial, whenever uh, his, his stepfather got drunk, he would beat the hell out of me. And that was put in there every other day. And so because of this abusive treatment, he left home. And he became a street person. And he and, and Blymeyer uh, came together. And the two of them met a man by the name of Milton Hess, who was a farmer from out at uh, Leaders Heights. And the Hess family was having a lot of trouble that summer. Uh, Cows weren't milking well. Crops were failing. And uh, they were involved in a bitter boundary dispute with a neighbor. Mrs. Hess was given to being very, very superstitious. And she was convinced that they, the whole family was under a curse. And when Blymeyer came into this situation, you can readily imagine what was going to happen. He confirmed the fact by, by, no, by no, no means, by every, you are, we are all under a curse, he told her. And, uh, and I know the answer. I know how to break the curse. I know who put the curse on us. Nelson Raymeyer, down in Raymeyer's Hollow. And in order to break the curse, I've got to go down there and get a lock of his hair and buried in the earth. And so, on the night of the 21st of November, 1928, Clayton Hess, son of the Hesses, drove Blymeyer and Curry down to the hollow. They stopped at the house of Mrs. Raymeyer. They went in and asked her where, was, where they could find Nelson. She said, well, as far as she knew, he was over at his house, another mile or so deeper in the hollow. And then as they turned to leave, she said she referred to him as that devilish old witch. And off they went to Raymire's house. They knocked on the door. Raymire came down, let them in, and they spent a very pleasant night regaling each other with stories of hex and witchcraft. The next morning, Raymire gave them breakfast. Off they went back to Leader's Heights. And Blymire reported to Mrs. Hess, Raymire is big and strong, and I've got to have help to bring him down. And Mrs. Hess said, well, for something as important as this, her son Wilbert can miss a day's work and go down with him. So that night, all three of them go down to the hollow. And they get out of the car, go back again to, to Raymire's house, knock on the door. Raymire comes down with his little lamp, lets them in. And uh, Jim McClure refers to this as a home invasion. Jim McClure of the Daily Record. And a historian in New York. Yes, and, a, a very, a very, and, and very much interested in this matter, in this case. So as, the, as Raymire turns to put wood on the fire, they grab him. And a, and a, and a, bitter, a bitter fight develops. It, 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 it escalates from the use of fists to the use of chair rungs and finally a block against Raymar, the side of Raymar's head and a rope around his neck. I don't think they intended to do this, but that's what happened. And uh, it was a bloody, bloody mess. 
Uh, and, and by the time they had gotten to the uh, rope around the neck and the block of wood against the side of his head, they believed he was dead. So they poured kerosene on his body and set it on fire. Now, I think at that point in the altercation, Blymeyer was unconscious. He was still alive. You mean Raymeyer? Raymeyer was still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the three of them leave. They think that they've uh, set fire to the evidence, that will destroy the evidence. The three of them leave. And as they walk along the wood line, they look back and they think they see Raymeyer moving about in the flame. Now, they think this was a spectral thing. But I think it probably was Raymar. I think he was had revived as a result of the fire, had, had re, regained consciousness, and was trying to escape the fire, trying to escape the the, the, the smoke and what have you, and was overcome and uh, and, and and died. And so uh, a couple of days later, a neighbor was uh, was uh, uh, noted that the livestock. And Raymar's little farm was not being cared for. He came over and looked in the kitchen window, and there he saw the partially charred, burned, partial and decomposing body corpse of Raymar on the kitchen floor. And the word went out: been this awful murder in Southern York County because of a belief in witchcraft and powwow. Talk more about the trial coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. On this day before Halloween, we're discussing two really fascinating murder cases in central Pennsylvania. The first portion of the program, we're talking about the Hex murder of York County that was committed in 1928 with J. Ross McGinnis. He's an attorney and author of the book Trials of Hex. He's here in our studio. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF. ITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, Mr. McGinnis, we've made it to the point where uh, Nelson Raymeyer was murdered by the three, and everyone, not just in York County, but I imagine outside the region even, is talking about how witchcraft was at the center of this. How long did it take before the three were arrested? Well, they were quickly rounded up. Uh, Mrs. Raymar told the authorities about the visit to her house, and uh, they were quickly rounded up and, and, and put in jail, and they all three confessed. And little did they know that overnight they had released the hounds of hell on that community. And this was the 20th century ver- version of the witchcraft phenomenon in Salem, Massachusetts, 200 years before. And it swept through the community like a tsunami. In what way? Well, uh, the papers picked it up immediately, of course. And they, and it started, they started talking about, immediately, about this terrible crime that had occurred in southern York County. At Ray Meyer's funeral, Reverend Bowersox uh, said that the, the greatest sorrow of the tragedy is that such a thing is possible in this community. And then he prayed that we might, we might not practice evil arts. Evil arts, of course, being powwow. And, 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 and this became a, a, a phenomenon of enormous proportions. I was in London some years ago, visited the morgue of the London Times, and found an article in the London Times on the hex murder of southern York County. Wow. So it went worldwide. It did. And, yeah. it, and it became quickly a matter of the Metropolitan Press's papers picked it up in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg. The New York Times ran an article on it. It was a, it was a cause celebra in that area, in that, in that region. And, 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 and of course, uh, the, the authorities... The uh, the people in 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 the count and and in, in running the the county were, were were stymied. They didn't know how to handle the thing. This thing, they decided that the thing to do was to bring these three individuals to trial as quickly as possible because this would stem that this this tide that was rolling over the community. 
So the, the authorities actually responded then to the amount of press coverage, the amount of attention it was getting. Oh, absolutely. There, there was even an investigatory com- committee c- that came down from Harrisburg to, to, to investigate the practice of powwow in York County. And so it was, it, was, it was a widespread phenomenon. So it sounds almost as if the practice of powwow, or as some people confused it with witchcraft, was in a way being blamed for this, that Raymire almost, the victim was almost being blamed yes, in a well, way. Yes, well, the powwow was a subculture of that period. It was a subculture, and, and, and there were a lot of powwow uh, doctors around that practices, practiced powwow. You know, I'm curious. You were talking about uh, Mrs. Hess being uh, superstitious. I mean, were people at that time, uh, were they superstitious? I mean, did they you, – you've made the point that uh, there were a lot of powwow doctors, maybe people practicing witchcraft. But uh, were they so superstitious that they thought there could be something to this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There was no question. As I indicated earlier – a lot of people went to powwow doctors uh, for cures, uh, and and in the in the long lost friend, there are there are there are cures for everything from cancer in people to the Sweeney and horses. It's a wide ranging anthology of of spells and and potions and things to do in order to cure uh, maladies in people. Sickness in people, sickness in animals. It's a, it's a, an interesting bi- anthology of various uh, uh, unusual practices. And some people claim that they got good results from this. Does that book still exist today? Oh, yes. Are there people still practicing powwow? Well, today? I suspect there are. I don't know. I think in some of the rural areas there's still pockets of it. But, uh, of course, I have no idea, that uh, no, no evidence of it. But I suspect there are pockets of it in, in York and Lancaster County and Lebanon County. I suspect there are people that still do it. All right. So let's talk about the trial. The, the, the trial itself became a spectacle. Well, there were three trials. Uh, the, 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 the case came to trial quickly. In the criminal court term that began in January 1929, uh, Ray Sherwood was a trial judge, and uh, he uh, made it very clear at the outset that there wasn't going to be any talk about powwow or hex. Now, the, the, the court-appointed attorney was Herbert Cohen. Uh, uh, Sherwood had had a, very, had a very close election the year before with my former law partner, McLean Stock. Herb Cohen was his lieutenant, and Herb Cohen was just starting his career as a uh, as a lawyer. Herb Cohen would later become uh, Democratic power in Pennsylvania, Attorney General, and end up on the Supreme Court. This is just the Supreme Court. But in 1929, he was just starting his career, and so uh, when he when the, when the court opened on Monday morning in in January 29, he petitioned the court to try these three individuals separately. And so Judge Sherwood thought that this was a good idea, so he granted the prayer of the petition. And so the three trials got underway, back-to-back murder trials, unheard of in, 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 in all of, of, of uh, I, I, at least I've never heard of it in, 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 in legal, juris, legal literature. And the first one to be tried was Blymeyer. And uh, and Cohen's defense was uh, insanity, but Co- uh, Sherwood said, "We're not going to let you talk about it, the, uh, the hex issue. We're not going to talk. It was, this is a murder trial." And then the district attorney was examining the first witness, and he asked him what they were doing down there in the hollow, and the witness didn't want to answer. And finally, the district attorney said, "Well, spit it out," and he said, "We were down there to get the witch." And this opened the door. Now Cohen could talk about it. And when the district attorney objected, the judge ruled, Mr. Mr. Uh, 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 Mr. Her- Herman, uh, you've opened the door. Now we've got to live with it. And so it became a, a, a issue in the, tr- in the trial. Uh, but the judge ruled that they couldn't, uh, that, that belief in witchcraft was no defense to murder. But then Cohen brought into court Two doctors who testified, one of them was Dr. Comro, 
who testified that, in his opinion, Blymar was insane. But the other doctor would only say that Blymar had the mind of a seven-year-old. So uh, when I talked to the foreman of the jury many years ago, he told me that when the jury went out, he was determined to bring him back with a first-degree murder conviction. He said that poor old man, Raymar, had been beaten to death, and he wasn't going to let them come back with less than that. He said some on the jury wanted second degree. Some on the jury wanted to execute Blymar. But he said we'd compromise with uh, first degree and life in prison. You know, now, again, this is 1929. Uh, I'm surprised, I mean, that the judge said no talk of witchcraft because that's a major part of the case. Well, it was. It was a major part of the case. But Sherwood was a no-nonsense judge. And he didn't want any talk about this business because he felt that it was irrelevant. But, of course, it became relevant because the district attorney got got it out on, in his examination of the first witness that they were going down there to get the witch. So the other two were convicted as well? Now, after the Blymar trial, uh, Curry was brought to trial. His, his, his attorney was Walter Van Bayman. And he was court-appointed as well. And he took a different tack. He said that Curry was the victim of social neglect and parental abuse. And at one point in the trial, he wheeled around and pointed to Curry's mother, who was seated in the courtroom, and he said, there's the person responsible for this boy being where he is today. And the mother, who had her apron stuffed in her mouth to suppress her snobs, let out a terrible cry and collapsed on the courtroom floor. Curry was convicted of first-degree murder and life in prison. Now, their first two defendants were both convicted of first-degree. And these trials were conducted one right after the other. And the third trial was Hess. And Hess was represented by Harvey Gross and Clarence Darrow, a nationally known criminal defense lawyer, said that the first two defendants were represented by lawyers of average competence. But he said the third defendant is represented by a lawyer who knows his way around the courtroom, and the outcome of the third trial will be different. Harvey Gross conducted a brilliant trial. If there is any such thing as a Rembrandt, Harvey Gross was the Rembrandt in that that trial. It was a a superb uh, demonstration of courtroom advocacy. And Harvey Gross, at one point in his argument to the jury, wheeled around and pointed to Mrs. Hess and said, that poor woman, that poor woman no more wanted to send her son down to the uh, uh, huddle that night than did old Abraham want to lead his boy up to the altar on a high mountain. Only in this case, he said, in this case, God did not provide a substitute for the sacrifice. And he said that struck that courtroom like a thunderbolt. It was absolute silence deadly silence. Somebody in the back of the courtroom sneezed, and the tip staff made him leave. It was, a, it was an absolute triumph. So Carvey Gross got that jury back uh, with second degree and 10 years. Mm. We got some phone calls. I want to take these, these calls. Joe is in Dallas Town. Joe, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Scott. Good morning. And Mr. McGinnis, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. All right. I had a, a long-time interest uh, in this story. Uh, I actually knew one of the jurors um, in the trial. Um, he was reluctant to talk about it, um, but uh, it's one of those stories here in York County that kind of lingers. Um, and I, I would ride my bicycle uh, past that house many, many times in southern York County. So uh, my question to Mr. McGinnis is, uh, uh, some time ago there was uh, an effort by the family to restore the house, and set it up as an attraction. Do you, do you know what the status of that is? Because I just went by there recently, and there's not much activity there. Yes, I'm I'm well aware of that. There is a, a grandson of Raymar by the name of Ricky Ebal, who uh, who wanted to do that, but uh, that's an expensive proposition, and Ricky doesn't have the money to do it. The township authorities uh, agreed to allow him do it to do it. But it, it takes uh, it takes some capital to uh, set up a, 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 a create that kind of a of a, of a venue. Uh, hey Joe, thank you very much for your call. So just to clarify, the house is still there, right? The house is still there. Okay, let's take uh, Susan from Lancaster. Susan, you're on here. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. This is really interesting. Um, listen, I've never heard 
the term powwow outside the context of Native Americans. And I'm wondering its root, and if you could, like, talk about it. Does it come from what they used to call, quote-unquote, the witch doctor practices, or, or what? I've heard about Wicca with witchcraft, but never powwow. Could you speak to that? Well, Thank you, you very know, much for your call. You know, powwow really is a term that originated with Native Americans. But uh, it's, it's, it's been taken over by, uh, by people in, the, in, the, in, in, this, in this area, this region, uh, as, a, as, a, as a way of, uh, of dealing with, uh, with, uh, with, with uh, health issues. And it became a, uh, it became a widely used term, but it, it really had its origin with Native Americans. And, and, and all I can say is there are, there are, uh, there are, uh, there's a lot of literature about it, and and the and the and the and the central uh, the central book uh, the central uh, source would be the long lost friend, which is which is which is around, which is can be can be obtained. All right, let's take one more call from Russ in Carlisle. Russ, you're on the air. Hey, thanks, uh, gentlemen. I just wanted to tell you I really had a good time listening to this story uh, because I grew up next to Raymar's Hollow, and it was well known that the place was haunted. Um, all kinds of rumor, all kinds of legend, but nobody I ever talked to really knew the real story. And it's just a lot of fun 30, 40 years later to, to hear what really happened. So I just wanted to tell you I appreciated it. Hey, Russ, thank you very much for your call. Haunted? Ray Myers Hollow, haunted? Uh, I, I, I think probably. Uh, I know that the, some groups down there conducted hayrides at, uh, at Halloween. I know the fire company at Winterstown used to uh used to conduct hay rides and uh, and they went by the house and uh, and they and it was thought that it was haunted i i've never known that to be the case but it may well be mm. it's a very lonely place it's a spooky place it's off of what road now cuz i have to go see this house well it's uh it's not far from uh, uh it's not far from shrewsbury it's about uh, uh 3 miles northeast of shrewsbury on what's the name of the road it's on uh, Raymire Hollow Road. Oh, okay. All right. J. Ross McGinnis, the author of the book Trials of Hex. Very fascinating, interesting story. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. On this day before Halloween, we're looking at a few of the true crime stories that create the fabric of the region's scary tales and urban legends. We turn now to Lebanon County in the late 19th century. Six men conspired to murder a neighbor in rural Lebanon County in 1879. That conspiracy involved a massive insurance policy, the Indiantown Creek, and six blue-eyed men. And it became known as the case of the Blue-Eyed Six. And joining us now is Gary Ludwig, who is a writer, novelist, and author of the book The Blue-Eyed Six about the bizarre murder and precedent-setting trial that followed. Mr. Ludwig, welcome to the program. Uh, it's nice to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. I'll ask the same question that I ask of our first guest about uh, the murders in uh, Raymar Hollow. The Blue-Eyed Six, the, the murder occurred in uh, 1879, but yet uh, driving into Lebanon County, anyone that lives in Lebanon County has heard this story, stories about the Blue-Eyed Six over and over. Uh, it is one that is even of urban legend that uh, it is so famous. Why is this case so fascinating and still talked about to this day? Well, I think there's a few a few reasons. Number, number one is there were a lot of old families uh, involved uh historically uh Lebanon county the northern part of the of the county is entrenched with old families and uh, they their uh, ancestors were directly or indirectly involved in it so it, it has been told uh down through the uh through the years in various um uh ways to and uh, so the tradition was carried. The reason I got involved with the whole thing is um, we we felt we we could tell a story that no one knew the details of. You know, uh, families would 
walk up to me and talk about the Blue Eye Six and the furthest thing uh, from the truth because they didn't know any better. So I decided I'm going to write a series of magazine articles. And I wrote uh, a four, it's a four, uh, four monthly uh, articles. And then, of course, now the people are coming and uh, I miss part two or I miss part four. And do you have the back issues? And, and of course, we decided uh, eventually to uh, just convert the four uh, magazine articles into one booklet. So we figured, okay, that's wonderful. Now we have this. Well, now we've been selling uh, copies of this booklet since 1979. And every week we sell copies. We've sold copies throughout the world. Uh, why somebody from Uganda is interested in the Blue-Eyed Six <laughs> is beyond me. Well, there is a, there is a reason. It was a precedent-setting uh, in a couple of a uh, couple of ways. Number one, all six men had decided that they were going to be tried together. Now these were the six defendants, and we'll talk right. more about them. But go ahead. Uh, before that, English law more or less uh, practiced the fact that if five people or six people murdered somebody, uh, only the person that did the actual killing would be charged with murder. The, the other defendants would be charged with conspiracy to commit murder. In this case, all the men decided they were going to be tried together. The district attorney said, well, okay, I'm going to try you all for murder. So that was the precedent setting, uh, the, big, the major one. The second, the second one, secondary, was uh, it was an insurance murder. As far as we know, it was the first insurance murder ever in the history of mankind. Now, that's, you know, that's, that's quite a statement to say, but we reasonably believe it's true. And, of course, they insured this old grimy hermit. Well, can I stop you there? Sure. Let's talk about that old grimy hermit. <clears throat> uh, Joseph Raber was his name. Tell me about uh, Joseph Raymer besides being grimy and a hermit. Well, he was illiterate. I mean, he was a he was subhuman. Basically, he lived in a ground hut uh, with Polly Kreiser, uh, one of the families that uh, can trace their ancestors back to the community of northern uh, the northern Lebanon County along the ridge up there in Greenpoint, along the Appalachian Trail. These people lived in total poverty. I mean, it's one thing to say you're poor, but when you have to worry about feeding your family every day, that's how poor they were. And Joe Raber was just, uh, like I said, he he was uh, uh, he stank, never took a bath, lived in a ground floor hut, and was illiterate. So that that's basically it. He he was uh, you could compare him with uh, you know livestock, really. So that's not exactly the kind of person you would uh, imagine or we would uh, envision today as someone taking out a large insurance policy on. So the six that uh, were charged in the murder, what was their plot? What was their plans? Well, they were all uh, they were all opportunists and entrepreneurs in varying degrees. Number one is. In those days, at that time, you could insure anybody. You you know, I mean, uh, a couple of the Blue Eye Six defendants insured their own parents. Uh, and it was a way to make a quick buck when somebody died. And the government was trying desperately to have this law uh, uh, killed. But it continued. So what they decided, of course, is we can insure Joe Raber. All he has to do is sign his name, which he could barely do. And um, we can insure him for like $8,000, which is the equivalent of you know, $150,000 today. When he dies, then we get the money. We split it. And uh, what would it take to take care of him for the rest of his life? I mean, look at him. He's diseased. He's dirty. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to live very long. So we're going to get the money. So did these guys, these six, did yeah. they know him ahead of time? Yeah. And, yeah. Was, and did Raber cooperate with this? 
Well, Raver didn't know what they, he just told them they were, they just told him they were going to get some insurance on him and it was going to enable them to take care of him, to make sure he has food and shelter. And um, so he was all for it, really. And they, they uh, just got him to sign the form and he was insured. They put up uh, the first month's premium. One of the one of the defendants had the money because his uh, house had burned down, uh, you know, a year earlier by questionable means. So he had all this money, and he paid the first premium on this policy. And um, so what they were doing is they had him insured for $8,000, and uh, he was uh, uh, sent on his merry way. So, okay, um, I assume then they knew Raber and said, you know, we're going to take it. Were they friends or what? They weren't friends. The the community in the Greenpoint, uh, northern uh, Lebanon area, these people were different. They they were all desperate. They, They, you know, merchants would come to that area and were never seen again. Hmm. So they they were they were desperate people who who were just uh, basically watching out for themselves. Uh, the whole neighborhood basically knew uh, about the conspiracy to 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 insure Raver. They they knew about the conspiracy to insure him. Did they know that? Well, maybe I should ask the question this way: Did they? originally planned to kill him or did they think that because he was ill and not healthy at all that it wouldn't be long before Raver died? Well, they didn't plan to kill him. They figured he was going to die, you know, pretty soon. Now, it got to the point where he didn't die and they couldn't afford the insurance policy premium. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, was a lot of money and they didn't have any money. So, uh, uh, Drew's who uh, was the uh, I, Charles Drews was a unique person among, uh, among the other six, the other five is because first of all he was a German immigrant. He wasn't born in America. He came to he came to America from Germany. He was educated. He was a tradesman. He was a butcher, and uh, he came and he eventually found himself in Pine Grove. Uh, mostly because of, uh, you know, his, he married a Kreiser also. Um, and he was a war hero. He carried the, the, the flag uh, when the 93rd Regiment uh, went into battle. The 93rd Regiment was the famous uh, regiment from Lebanon that the Coleman family financed. In the Civil War, you mean? Right, in yeah. the Civil War. So Drews was a, was a war hero. Uh, but he was, you know, he had the house across the street from the, where the murder was committed. And so he was the community leader and he killed who knows how many people in the war. So it wasn't really a big thing that he was going to commit murder. And he told everybody in the neighborhood, if anybody uh, talks about this, they were going to be also killed. So let's talk about the murder itself. How okay. did it actually occur? Frank Frank Stickler, who was a wild and wooly guy, youngest of the blue-eyed six, uh, uh, he could be talked into doing just about anything. Well, Drews uh, got Frank to help him. And what they did is they decided, they told Joe, old Joe Raber, they were going to take him uh, uh, for tobacco. Uh, which I, I I think it would it would have been Danville uh, or some somewhere nearby, and uh, so he was all anxious because he you know he wanted a tobacco, so they 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 got they met him at uh, at uh, Drew's uh, house and they uh, just went on their way. They went down to the creek, Indian Town Creek, which is part of St. Joseph Springs. That was a resort area up there, you know. And, uh, well, when they got him uh, walking on the log in the creek, uh, Drews made sure he lost his balance, and he fell into the creek, and Drews put his foot on top of uh, Drews, uh, Raver's head and drowned him. Uh, 
Originally, the coroner ruled it as accidental. When did it become a murder case? Uh, it, that's a little sketchy because what happens was, what happened was it was a lot of, uh, you know, credibility factors, political factors. Uh, but he did a what you would call today an autopsy uh, at the cemetery. And uh, he felt because there was water in his lungs uh, that there's no way he could have uh, could have been an accident. Uh, so he ruled it a homicide. But it, I mean, originally it was an accident. They thought to be accidental. Right. But uh, then after this autopsy. So when were the six arrested then? Just just about a, a week or so, two weeks after after the autopsy. So you're just talking about a, a month or two uh, period from start to finish. Now, as you said, this was a precedent center in that uh, there were six defendants tried all at once and tried for murder. Uh, when did it become such uh, a celebrated trial? I mean, now you had uh, not just... Uh, the local media covering this. You had uh, newspapers from around the country, uh, maybe even around the world. As you said, uh, right. Uganda, someone right. interested in the blue-eyed six. When did it become such a spectacle? Well, what happened was the Philadelphia newspaper, the uh, I believe it was the Inquirer. I'm not, I have it written somewhere, but they sent a reporter to cover the trial. And the reporter, young reporter looking to advance his career, uh, very observant, he noticed that they all had blue eyes. So he titled his news coverage and his article, The Blue-Eyed Six. And when that hit the wire and got published, uh, it spread out all over the, the nation. All, all the newspapers just picked up on that, The Blue-Eyed Six. So he started writing, covering the trial, and it just increased in popularity. Uh, it just mushroomed. Uh, this was a fascinating thing that, you know, were were they um, Satan inspired? And because they were all born with blue eyed six, did 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 the devil make give them blue eyes? And you know all this folklore that gets distorted. But basically. That's what happened. The, the publicity because they had the blue eyes. No, no other reason. Mm. That it was it was kind of, uh, I don't know, convenient, if you will. If one of them had brown eyes, you wouldn't have had a blue-eyed six. That's exactly right. From what I understand at this trial, and this would seem to be unusual at the time as well, although I don't know for sure. But in today, it probably would, unless there's a, you know, like an O.J. Simpson trial, a trial of the century. But there were dozens of witnesses for both sides, right? Yeah, that m most of the witnesses had alternative uh, motives. For for instance, uh, Henry Wise was despised by most people. Who's Henry Wise? He was uh, one of the defendants, right? Mm -hmm. He uh, he was you know just a very very un unsavory character. People just didn't like him. He would uh, you know kill his mother for. A, for money, if he, but he insured her instead. Uh, so there were a lot of people that, uh, that you know, uh, first of all, the murder was witnessed by uh, Drew's son in law. And he had come home from the war to find that Frank Stickler was uh, having an affair with, yeah. okay, with Lena. Okay. And uh, so he was extremely upset about it, obviously. But he moved into the Drew's house because he was married to Lena. So he was the husband. Uh, and he was upstairs. Now, this is just a cabin with a half second floor, you know, like bedrooms upstairs, an attic. And he was upstairs and he was looking out the window and he seen him kill Joe Raber. Mm -hmm. So everybody said, uh, well, you know, why was he at the window? And, you know, that, that doesn't seem right. Well, it turns out that, you know, the window was covered with burlap, but the piss pot, excuse the language, was at the window. That's where you would put it. And he was, that's what he was doing. 
uh, probably he was uh, urinating, looking out the window, and he's seen the murder committed. So, but he didn't have anything to lose because his father-in-law could uh, could uh, threaten him. But the fact of the matter is, he had the daughter, the Lena. They took off and took off and left the area. We only have about a minute or so left. So the six were found guilty. What was their punishment? Well, five were hanged. Uh, Zachman got a retrial. Zachman was, you know, uh, we probably should have named uh, each of the defendants. But anyhow, uh, Zach, Zachman uh, uh, got a retrial to a, a bunch of hanky-panky nonsense, dis, you know, legal finagling and all that. He did get, he wasn't hanged. Uh, however, he had a serious health problems and probably would have been a blessing if he would have been hanged. Mm. So five of the six were hanged. Uh, as you said very early on, in about 30 seconds or less, this is not a ghost story, but uh, Joe Raber is buried at Moonshine Church in Lebanon County. I've actually seen the grave. Yeah. But there are rumors that uh, you look inside Moonshine Church, you see ghosts. Well, yeah, when you're a teenager and you're out uh, on a date with your, and it's a couple of couples, uh, and you decide you want to go on Halloween or, or any time, uh, it's a scary story to drive up a Boonshine Church. The church doesn't enjoy the fact that it exists, but uh, so everybody imagines they see the ghost. <laughs> Gary Ludwig is the author of The Blue-Eyed Six. Mr. Ludwig, thank you very much for being with us today. Okay, well, thank you. Coming up uh, on Wednesday's Smart Talk, by the way, I want to mention that uh, it's the uh, November 1st is the open enrollment, the start of open enrollment for the American, or excuse me, for the Affordable Care Act that comes up on Wednesday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. 